leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. barrier provides essential protection against pathogens while allowing needed oxygen and nutrients to pass. However, one challenge it presents is getting therapeutics delivered to the brain and central nervous system. Bioasis Technologies has developed a way to attach fusion proteins to drugs to allow them to pass the blood-brain barrier. We spoke to Mark Day, CEO of Bioasis, about its platform technology what's known about it from testing to date, and the potential therapeutic implications of being able to deliver drugs systemically that can reach the central nervous system and brain. Mark, thanks for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the blood-brain barrier, Bioasis Technologies, and the company's platform for Carrying therapeutics across the blood-brain barrier. Let's start with the blood-brain barrier itself, though. What is it, and how does it work? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the blood-brain barrier is there. It exists as a almost like, you imagine like a wall. with really a bunch of vessels, but it's a wall that's there to protect the brain from toxins, right? It's, its whole function is to maintain equilibrium in the brain so that all the things that we use our brain for, cognitive processing, um, it protects it. So it doesn't let, with a couple of exceptions, you know, toxins through it. And that's what it's designed for, is to keep garbage out of the brain, right? And so, now that's a good thing, right? Obviously, certain things do get across the blood-brain barrier that we're all very familiar with. Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol. Um, various other substances that uh, easily cross the blood-brain barrier that maybe aren't necessarily the best healthy things to get in. But the main downside to the blood-brain barrier in this context is that medicines like, for say, brain cancers, where the medicines work really well on the peripheral symptoms, so if you have HER2-positive breast cancer, for example, Herceptin, uh, which was marketed by Roche, you know, um, you know, they do a really good job of you know, being, being the standard of care, right? And the same in glioblastoma, right, where Avastin isn't as good at treating uh, glioblastoma, but that's because it really needs to get into the brain to be able to do it. So what happens is, in about 80% of the cases, antibodies, they're large, right, just naturally large. It's very hard for them to pass through the blood-brain barrier. So what this has led to is um, people doing invasive approaches 
treating brain diseases, which typically requires, in the worst case scenario, is drilling a hole in the patient's head and infusing the drug directly. And they've done that with Herceptin, for example. And the upside to that, to those studies, have been that it shows that at therapeutic doses in the brain, albeit these are typically in very small studies, like typically one or two patients per paper, and this is published on, it's shown that you're not seeing any differential effects, negative effects, on the brain administration versus the peripheral administration. So we see this as uh, not an, an appropriate option for patients that are already very sick. So we've been developing a way of crossing the blood-brain barrier um, that's non-invasive and is literally like an, uh, an intravenous injection that is able to bypass the blood-brain barrier. And we've been very successful with that. And in terms of empirical data that's out there, as well as generated data, it's quite clear that BioAsis has the leading, best-in-class technology for delivering medicines into the brain. Well, is, there, is, there are two is it main, just a oh, function sorry. of the size of a molecule, or are there other qualities that something needs to cross the blood-brain barrier? Right. So typically, size is important. So the smaller the smaller the, 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 the drug is, the more likely it is to cross the blood-brain barrier. So only in a handful of cases with small molecules have I seen issues with these things getting into the brain and staying in there. So one of the qualities you've got to have is um, that these things don't get pumped back out. So certain targets that I've worked on in the past in other companies, the drugs that went before them, which were the same mechanism, got in and stayed in the brain and bound to where they were supposed to be. In some cases, we saw ones where they were pumped straight back out. So there are certain qualities that a small, even a small molecule must live up to in order to, once it's in the brain, stay in there. But by a large part of small molecules, they're typically pretty easy to get into the brain. But antibodies, just due to the size of them, have been a challenge. And so what you've got is, you know, a whole plethora of different diseases and cancers and neurodegenerative illnesses where the peripheral treatments have been treated fairly well, but the brain manifestations and neuropathic indications just remain untreated. And we, we, we really believe that we have developed a solution to that. Well, in terms of need or opportunity, could you put some perspective what being able to reliably deliver drugs across the barrier might mean? Oh, absolutely. So if you diagnose, and you know, everyone's been affected by cancer, either directly or through family members and friends. If you're diagnosed with brain cancer as you know, John McCain with the glioblastoma that he, he has, right? You know that that's not a reversible condition by and large. And what that means is that when a patient finds out that they now have cancer in the brain, not only is their quality of life worsened, but also their, their life expectancy is short, right? Because to date, there's been no real meaningful improvements in terms of clearing out those you know, those brain cancers, right, the glioblastomas and the, the brain mets. So it's a really meaningful thing to be able to deliver a therapeutic that gets to the brain and can, you know, hopefully take out most of the brain tumors that are in there, both for survival and for quality of life. Um, if we're successful with this, we'll be the first company to ever demonstrate 
that we can actually deliver through a blood-brain barrier mechanism, that we can deliver medicines to the brain. I, I think it would be it would be game-changing news. Right? We consider this issue of the blood-brain barrier the final frontier in neuroscience of something that we believe is achievable now. Um, and, you know, we want to be the company that delivers it. Uh, I know fusion proteins have long been seen as a potential means of transporting molecules that would normally not cross the blood-brain barrier to the brain. What is a fusion protein? That is a great question. Um, so typically you've got two ways of, you've got more than two, but you've got two ways of linking this um, to, you know, your target drug. So in the conjugation method, what you're essentially doing there is it's a bit noisier, it's a little bit dirtier in the sense of you're linking something, but you're also carrying some, you know, potential noise in the system. With the fusion protein, because it's basically genetically linked um, to what you're targeting it, uh, what you're binding it to, you get a much cleaner kind of uh, delivery and pharmacokinetic profile with the drug. So the fusion protein gives you a much cleaner potential medicine. So are you just taking a, a protein therapeutic and, and linking it to a, a, another genetically engineered protein that signals that it should be allowed to pass? So in this case, the reason why it's allowed to pass is through the mechanism of action. So what's really unique about our technology is it works through um, and what we call the LRP1 receptor. And without going into the weeds on the LRP1, there's a couple of key things about LRP1. It's ubiquitous, not just on the blood-brain barrier wall. There's lots of LRP1 doorways to sneak drugs into the brain through that mechanism. Um, so that's, that's one important. We have the fastest, what we call, endocytosis uh, rates, how fast you can get in, how big the payload you can get in. The LRP1 really enables it to get in. Once you get into the brain, you've now got receptor localization in, I'd say, three different ways. First of all, key neurons, uh, areas of the brain, um, the LRP1 receptor is expressed in entorhinal cortex is one, that's, you know, Edvard Moser, the recipient of the 2014 Nobel Prize for Neuroscience. His work was on spatial navigation into cortex. We now know that this area of the brain is involved. When this thing goes AWOL, this, this part of the brain basically is associated with first episode schizophrenia. Um, it's also involved in the development of Alzheimer's disease when patients first start to lose their most recent memories. And as the disease progresses, they remember less and less about recent times, but they can remember 20, 30 years out. It's a process which we refer to as temporally graded amnesia. And it's essentially the loss of memories over time, so your most earliest memory might be now 20, 30 years ago. But to the patient, that's the real reality for them. The hippocampus is also a key part of the brain where the LRP1 receptors are, and that's to do with this new you know, memory formation. Cerebellum, which is the motor bit, the back of your head, just behind your ears in the middle, that controls your motor functions. And so in a lot of, uh, like in ALS, for example, and other motoric diseases, you know, cerebellum is a really important area to be able to, you know, kind of get the drug to. So when we get into the brain, 
we've got neurons we can bind this to, right, that it'll go out and find them. Um, and also in neuroinflammatory diseases, LRP1 is not regulated in, like, you know, areas like microglia, activated astrocytes, endothelial cells, parasites. And it does that as a response because the main function of LRP1 is in brain maintenance. So in Alzheimer's disease, for example, the receptor by which we sneak into the brain and then we can find the receptors in the brain uh, that it binds to. It also has the additional dividend that when there's a pathology in the disease, uh, disease pathology like with hypoxic events, like in brain metastases, in glioblastomas, you see upregulation of this receptor as like a response to the damage that's, that's happening. Um, that's an important you know, piece of information, really, because it, and you see this in Parkinson's disease, too. So in the areas of the brain that are responsible for the Parkinson's symptoms, like substantia nigra, um, you will see in Parkinson's disease a really upregulation of the LRP1 receptors. So everything about this technology and this receptor is geared to getting this drug into the brain, finding the right places of damage, and, and, and solving for those. And we do have a really concrete example with, um, in her two positive brain, brain metastases. Um, I, would you like me to tell you a little bit more about that program? Well, I, in, in a moment, before we get to that, um, in your, your platform, which is called XB3, any sense how it differs from previous efforts to use fusion proteins to carry Things like, say, enzyme replacement therapies across the blood-brain barrier. Do any any sense why you're being successful with something that hasn't worked for other people? Yeah, I actually think I really believe it comes down to the mechanism, the LRP1 receptor. We have delivered enzyme uh, therapies, and we've also seen clearance of waste products in lysosomal storage diseases. So typically, what happens in those diseases in the peripheral tissue? get an accumulation of the waste product, you know, say heparin sulfate, for example. And I think the current standard of care, they do an okay job at removing some of the peripheral waste products. The issue is the brain, right? So what we've been able to show in preliminary studies, um, so they're still ongoing, but, you know, the data's, the data's looking good, is that you've got, we can clear out things like heparin sulfate. Um, and I think it's to do with the mechanism because most of our competitors, that's a big differentiator, can't underestimate the speed issue of how fast you get across the blood-brain barrier. I mean, for us, it's like 30 seconds. Um, for the other technologies, it's a minimum of around 10 minutes. So that's how fast can you actually get to the target tissue, right, across the blood-brain barrier. And then once you're in there, you've now got to be able to prove that you actually bind to the areas of the brain that matter. And across enzymes, siRNAs, antibodies, and large small molecules like doxorubicin, we've successfully delivered all those types of cargos at around the four point, uh, yeah, about four to six percent of the injected dose. And they have translated into target engagement. That's evidence, empirical evidence, that you not only after you deliver the drug that it goes to the target tissues. So that, that's a huge differentiator. The other thing that differentiates the, the program from others is we have a very set criteria to make go-no-go no go decisions. We don't want to develop a drug and put it into development because it's accretive financially. We only want to put drugs into patients that have got a chance 
of treating the patient in a meaningful way. And so to do that, we use three or four markers of success rate that have been proven to give you a better probability of delivering a medicine. You've got to be able to get across the blood-brain barrier and engage the target. So in brain cancer, that means, in this case, showing that your drug distribution in the brain is specific to the brain cancers and when the areas where they are. So we've ticked that box. Um, in a mouse model, but we're using human HER2-positive cells for patients and using them to manifest the HER2-positive cells in the mouse brain. So we get really good targeting of that. In terms of, um, and we can do tenfold higher delivery into the brain than trastuzumab alone, just by combining technology. But so that's the target engagement bit. The second bit, though, is your target engagement has to drive a biological change, right? That tells you the biology that you're expecting to impact, that it's working. And, uh, you know, two, two examples of that. In, the, in our trastuzumab our 001 program, which is trastuzumab combined with our technology, a fusion protein, is that we can we see a 68% reduction in the number of tumors and a 58 to 60% reduction in the volume of the tumors when XB3 is on board. With trastuzumab alone, there's no effect to trastuzumab. So you've hit the target, you've shown a biological response. The next question is, which are the patients that are most likely to respond? So if you have a genetic basis for your patient selection criteria, then you've got a real solid probability of success because you've done all the things that are meaningful to being successful in a phase two group contact. There's a, a wide range of therapeutics you might want to carry across the blood-brain barrier. Does the XB3 fusion protein work on virtually anything? Are there restrictions on what it can carry and what it can't carry? Well, to this date, you know, um, so the MedImmune manuscript that just came out, MedImmune independently validated our technology with an interleukin-1 antibody that just, you know, doesn't get across the blood-brain barrier. And that was a fusion, that was a fusion. And in those data, it adds to the armamentarium of our portfolio, right? So with the ILR1A antibody, single dose of the drug in a two-week study, increase the brain exposure up to about 4.5% of the injected dose. And then for the duration of the study, the brain, pen the, the brain exposure of the ILR1 in the brain which remains steady out to the end of the study. That's a single dose with a cutoff point, just artificially, at two weeks. So that's not repeat dosing. So we could probably get even more exposure in the brain. And uh, because the study only lasted for two weeks in terms of its duration, all the signs are showing that this thing potentially could go out for several weeks more. So we've not seen any evidence at this point um, of not being successful in delivering different types of cargo um, to target tissues. And, and does the fusion protein alter the behavior of a drug in any way once it's delivered? Yeah, no, we've not seen anything like that. There's actually dividends that have been realized from it. Um, so I mentioned that we don't change to this date, we haven't modified, caused a change in the systemic PK of anything we've we've conjugated or fused to. Um, so that's an important point. But what we are seeing improvements in as well is the pharmacokinetic profile overall. So we have examples where the Tmax, you know, goes from you know 20 days to get to Tmax two days. 
So we're actually seeing that XB3 is making the binding in peripheral and in central nervous system tissue much more selective than, say, the test article. So for Herceptin, for example, you know, there's good data there now that shows that, you know, trastuzumab alone is way more sporadic in its distribution. With XB3, it's a lot more localized and focused, and we think it's because it's, you know, really selective for its target. It's very good at seeking it out and binding it. And that would also explain, because if it's at its receptors and not sloshing around the system, then that would give you a cleaner PK profile. But we don't fully understand, to be candid, exactly the actual reasons why why that cleans up so well. But to date, you know, that's the data. What's the business model here? Is the idea to, to license the technology to existing therapeutics that can benefit from it, or is it to build your own pipeline? So, so we have our own pipeline. We have four programs. Um, so our aim here is that we're, we're really good at the translational medicine part, so we're very confident about our ability to get through the phase one ourselves. But I think at that point, for example, you know, small biotech like BioAsis, can't run, you know, a significantly sized, you know, phase two brain cancer. And, um, you know, so at that point, I think that's where, and typically, you know, pharmaceutical companies like to wait till, you know, there's something really, you know, makes the decision for them as opposed to maybe proactively say, yeah, actually, we believe this got a good probability. So at that inflection point of completing the phase one studies, again, I think actually the target engagement data probably um, an inflection point but I'd expect you know we'd need we probably want support from a pharmaceutical company that's really versed at running phase two to phase three um, you know trials in brain cancers and even in some of the neurodegenerative illnesses. So are you in the clinic with anything at this point and how do you prioritize your programs? Yeah so right now we're preparing for the clinics we've got an FDA meeting on our lead program 001 in October, and we expect to be first in human with 001 in um, third quarter 2019. And what is the and 001 program? Oh, that's the Herceptin um, XP3 fusion. And what's the timeline for for moving forward? Um, so it's pretty much dependent on the FDA outcome, the discussions the FDA. Um, so. So we've got the FDA meeting coming up. We've got phase one po protocol drafted. We have a list of questions that we're just working through in order to make sure you, know, you get one shot with the FDA right on this stuff. So we want to make sure that's watertight um, by the time we get there. Um, and then the glioblastoma study, we'll be doing the proof of concept, um, using imaging studies in preclinical models. Um, and then for 007 and 008, we are advancing the science on those, but because, you know, they're, they're, they're confidential at this point um, without a CDA. And so, you know, we have a very strong pipeline at stage. So we're not trying to do everything at once. So once Program 1 achieves its first in human, Program 2, the glioblastoma study, will have achieved its preclinical program, proof of concept, and be ready for IND. And you'll see that through the pipeline. Mark Day, CEO of BioAsis Technologies. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. No, thank you.
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.